This is the last lesson in our quarter, so next week we'll be starting Glimpses of God. I love the title, and see if we have a really fun time next quarter. All right, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study today, together today. We ask that your Spirit will join us and our hearts will be united, that we will see more clearly the truth about your kingdom, and that you will lead in our discussion. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 14 in our quarterly Gospel in Galatians, and the title this week is Boasting in the Cross. And this week, let's jump to Friday's lesson and start with Friday's lesson this week. And let's read that first section together, first two paragraphs. This is from um, the LNG White comments of the SDA Bible Commentary, page 1113. It says, The cross of Calvary challenges and will finally vanquish every earthly and hellish power. In the cross, all influence centers, and from it, all influence goes forth. It is the great center of attraction, for on it, Christ gave up his life for the human race. This sacrifice was offered for the purpose of restoring man to his original perfection. Yea, more, it was offered to give him an entire transformation of character, making him more than a conqueror. Those who, in the strength of Christ, overcome the great enemy of God and man will occupy a position in the heavenly courts above angels, who have never fallen. Christ declares, I, if I be lifted from the earth, will draw all unto me. You notice I left the word men out because that was supplied by editors. It's actually not in the Bible or Ellen White doesn't use it either. I will draw all unto me. If the, if the cross does not find an influence in its favor, it creates an influence. Through generation succeeding generation, the truth for this time is revealed as present truth. Christ on the cross was the medium whereby mercy and truth met together and righteousness and peace kissed each other. This is the means that is to move the world. What do you all think about this? And I wanted to go through this as we started today, so we're going to glory in the cross as a, or boast in the cross. And I thought maybe we could take it and look at it maybe sentence by sentence or most of the sentences through. Notice the first sentence of the quote. The cross of Calvary challenges and will finally vanquish every earthly and hellish power. Is that what you typically think of when you think of earthly and hellish powers being vanquished? That they get vanquished by the cross? Or do you generally get the image of fire coming down from heaven and God using might and power to vanquish as the force of evil? Yes. I think Satan did everything he could to defeat Christ, even on the cross. For example, if you want to save yourself, come down. This is one of the last temptations that Satan threw at Christ. That's exactly right. So if we look at the quotation here, though, every, how many is every? All, totality, all earthly and hellish powers will be vanquished by the cross. But generally, in the presentations I've heard growing up and the things I've read, what vanquishes evil and sin in the end is an exercise of might and power coming down from heaven. That's how it's generally been presented in my mind. If I would have just asked the question to a church, how does evil and hellish powers get vanquished in the end? What's the general answer? Yeah, you notice this is saying the cross of Christ, and I want to explore why that's true and why it's not the other. Yes? As I was reading through that, 
that whole passage earlier, I was struck by the idea that we tend to associate earthly and hellish power with Satan and his minions. But I think that isn't anywhere explicit in that text. It's more the idea that the earthly and hellish power is our human nature. Uh, I think early earthly powers I would go with as being human nature potentially, but hellish powers it tells, suggests to me is suggesting something beyond the human. The earthly is suggesting human. Hellish to me suggests something other than human, like the, the satanic powers. That's what I'm reading into it. So, but don't, don't earthly powers derive their right. genesis from hellish powers? Yes, exactly. So the question is, what are the earthly and hellish powers? Let's identify those, yes. This goes back to the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yes, yeah. Think of, okay, like that. Prevail against what? The gospel, right? Okay, well, think about in a wartime footing. You're at war. What kind of weapons are gates? Offensive or defensive? Defensive. So the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. In other words, since Christ, the devil's on the defense. See, he has taken by deception the minds of men. If you put this in in the uh, the biblical definition of this kind of war, for though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice what we demolish. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So this war that we're embattled for is in the mind centering on a knowledge of God. Satan took captive mankind through deception in Eden, and, and Christ came with the embodiment of truth to reveal the truth about God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known unto men. So the truth now is going to demolish strongholds that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so Satan is now on the defense trying to hold the minds that he has in darkness. But the gates of hell, the gates of, what, what are the gates of hell? Lies and deception. So one of the roots, one of the roots of, of evil are lies. Satan is the father of lies. And the other big root to evil is selfishness, the principle at war with the law of love. Okay, these two are the roots, so the earthly and hellish powers, as I understand them, stem from both lies and selfishness. So if you put that, put that together, can lies be destroyed by the exercise of might and power? Can, a, can anybody, if somebody's lying about you, and you begin to threaten them, with, with punishment, with imprisonment, with, with beatings, will that solve the lies in the community? Will people believe you're innocent? Or will the lie spread if you use those tactics? If you get angry, if you start using force and might, what happens in the minds of people regarding what you're trying to stop being said? It, it, it spreads, doesn't it? Yes. God cannot win his war over lies about him by the exercise of might and power. How about love? If somebody's selfish and got selfishness in their heart, can you engender and build love in that heart by the exercise of might and power and threat and coercion? Mm-hmm. Again, that's why the scriptures say, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. And the Spirit is called the Spirit of love and the Spirit of 
truth. It's truth and love are the weapons to be used. And so at the cross, what do we find at the cross? But the culmination of the revelation of truth and love. And so the cross is what vanquishes the powers. The cross is what defeats everything. Because the war has never been a war about might and power. The devil wants to divert our attention back away from the truth about who he is, the truth about who God is, and he wants us to focus on a distortion of God using might and power. Yeah. In the Bible, we also read that Satan was the a murderer from the beginning. And I thought by putting Christ to death on the cross, by means of the Romans and the Jewish church at the time, he could squash Christianity. Yeah, and it didn't work, did it? So think this through, because we're talking in the first sentence about the cross vanquishing every earthly and hellish power. What happens to earthly and hellish or satanic power when the church teaches a God who must use power to punish and kill? Does it vanquish the hellish powers or does it strengthen the hellish powers? That's exactly right. When we present these distorted ideas, we actually strengthen Satan's hold on people's minds. We don't weaken them. So what biblical support do we have that the cross will vanquish these powers? If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all. The Greek actually doesn't even have the word men. We always supply that because the, the, the Bible perspective is always a bigger perspective than just mankind. That's why it says in Colossians that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. It's a much bigger deal. Or Corinthians 4, 9, which says that this world is a theater, a spectacle unto angels and to men. Or Peter says about how the angels long to look into these things. Yet this battle between Christ and Satan um, began in heaven, extended to earth, and God's solution includes more than just mankind. It's a solution for the whole universe. So Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 thinking again about the cross vanquishing the powers. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who've lived all their lives held in slavery by the fear of death. So his death somehow destroys him who holds the power of death. I want to explore that. Yes. In your last blog you talked about could... Uh, what would happen if Christ died in Gethsemane? And the significance of the cross is that it exposes vividly the contrast between God and Satan, the uh, tremendous love and the tremendous evil. And in that uh, situation, then you have to be able to see the difference, and then that difference is what really makes in the mind the, uh, the contrast, and that is what vanquishes evil. Do you all agree that it's important to see the difference between Christ's sacrificial, loving character, laying down his life willingly, no one can take my life, I give it freely, and this malignant being who uses his power to kill and torture and torment? Do you see it's important to see the difference? Now, if you were Satan and you were this malignant torturer, would you want people to see you for that? So you're Satan. Christ has exposed you for anybody, you know, it's like you look out in the parking lot and you see a 40-year-old man cursing at a 5-year-old little girl, calling her every foul name you've ever heard. You don't look over and go, what a horrible little girl. You don't think that for a second. He's exposed, right? The man has exposed himself. Okay, Satan exposed himself at the cross. He stands completely exposed for all those who are watching. But if you weren't actually there to watch it, 
and you live generations down the road and you're only getting reports of what happened at that incident, then there's opportunity to kind of twist the story, isn't there? To spin, you know, the old, the old political spin. We're going to spin the story now. And, and devil has put the spin on the story. And this afternoon, I'm going to give you quote after quote in our Let's Talk to show you how the story has been spun. And do you know the story taught by every Christian church, including our own, every Christian church, well, all of them, is that God revealed himself as a murderer at the cross when God executed his son at the cross. And it's all been spun around backwards that it wasn't Satan that exposed himself as a murderer at the cross. God exposed himself as an executioner at the cross. I was saying, you can think of it as they're both, they're both powers. Like uh, Satan's a power of lies and deception and maybe coercion pushing where God's a power of, of love and, uh, and truth. And truth and, and choice. And, and freedom, uh, yeah. Yeah, freedom. That type of thing. Beautiful. Well said, yes. In Matthew ten twenty-eight, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. It's interesting, when we look at various versions of that text, unfortunately, many of the translators include a capitalization of the one to imply God. And, and many of the modern versions have fear God who can kill. That's exactly right. No, and he's exactly right. That text is used, well, you know, man can't kill the soul, only God can kill the soul. I want to just read from you from last week's lesson. This is a quote from the SD Bible Commentary, Ellen G. White's Comments, page, um, volume 6, page 1112. All should be intelligent in regard to the agency by which the soul is destroyed. It is not because of any decree that God has sent out against man. He does not make man spiritually blind. God gives sufficient light and evidence to enable man to distinguish truth from error, but he does not force man to receive the truth. He leaves him free to choose the good or to choose the evil. If man resists evidence that is sufficient to guide his judgment in the right direction and chooses evil once, he will do this more readily the second time. The third time he will still more more eagerly withdraw himself from God and choose the side of Satan. And in this course, he will continue until he is confirmed in evil and believes the lie he has cherished as truth. What is the agency by which the soul is destroyed? Our own free will choices destroy us. That's what does it. So we should fear no one except our own selves. We're the ones. It's, it's like I have patients who will sometimes threaten suicide. And I mean, not just like once in their life. I have patients who have threatened or told me, I'll take an interview, have you ever thought of suicide? Yes. How many suicide attempts have you made? Over a hundred. Not very good, are you? (laughs) I mean, if you get that history, you can be sure that person does not want to die. That person uses suicide to manipulate people and control people in their environment. And I've had families where we're completely wrapped around the control of a, of a person who does this. And I actually had to say to the family, with the patient in the room, look, the only person that can keep your loved one, and I'll say to the patient, the only person can keep you safe from you 24 hours a day, seven days a week is you. If you want to find a time and a place to end your life, nobody can stop you. 
And so I have to tell families, so you need to look to your loved one and say, we love you. We want you to live. We want you to be happy. But if you want to end your life, we won't be able to stop you. We will cry at your funeral, but we're not coming anymore when you threaten. And I've had several families that have had to do this, and when the families did it, within, I mean, this has been going on for 10 years, threats like this on an almost daily basis, and when the families did it, within two weeks, all the suicide threats stopped. Now, that's not every person. i just be clear. That's a, you know, I don't want you to say, oh, all, all people who have suicidal thoughts are doing this. They're not. But sometimes that's what's going on. The situation is the same here. The principle, the only one can save you from you, given the fact that Christ has done what's necessary for your salvation and is offering you free remedy for your condition, and it's there and available, it's your choice now. It's on you. You couldn't have cured yourself. You had no ability to, to save yourself de novo, but God has made available to you this option. And now it's up to you. Does everybody agree with that? Yeah. So this question of Satan's power. By his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, the power of death. Well, John 17 tells us, Jesus speaking, this is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ who now is sent. So do the math with me. Life eternal equals... Say it louder. Life eternal equals knowing God. And that knowing in the Bible is not knowing about. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave a son. Or David, when he was old and cold, had a woman with very high metabolism come sleep with him to keep him warm. And the Bible says he never knew her. That does not mean they weren't introduced. Okay, It's an intimacy with God, a knowledge of him. Do we know him? For instance, we know about Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, but how many of us know them? Okay, same with God. The question life eternal is knowing God, not knowing about God. So, if life eternal is knowing God, that's what it is, what would eternal death be? Not knowing God. Not knowing God. So Satan's power, he's the father of the lies. We, we war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So Satan's power are the lies that he tells about God that we believe that interfere with our knowledge of him, our relationship with him, and thus Christ destroys him and his power by destroying the lies about God and revealing the truth about God. That, that, that power is disarmed. This is why the Bible means he disarms the devil. The devil is now disarmed. He has no weaponry when you hold the truth about God. Okay, here's an interesting comment. Um, what do you think it means in light of Christ's death destroying Satan and his power? And this is out of Desire of Ages 761. Satan saw that his, dis- his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels, before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. What do you think it means that uh, Satan's activities were restricted? Did after the cross, God now have the legal right to put up a force field around earth and hold Satan within a force field where he can't get out? Nobody else would listen. Yes. After the truth had been settled into the minds of the intelligent beings, no intelligent being outside of earth will now listen to Satan. Hey, talk to the hand. Not listening. Not listening. His work was restricted by the truth having set minds free and solidified the intelligent beings in a knowledge of Satan's true character and that he was a liar and a fraud. And so he had no power over them anymore. His power is the power of lies. And his power was broken. The question is, is his power broken in your mind? 
Is his power broken in our minds? Or does he still have power to wield on this earth? Is he wielding power in our church? If he's telling lies and we're holding to lies about God and we're sharing lies about God, then he has power. It's as we present the truth about God, we break that power. So, the Bible also tells us that Christ vanquished death by his death. In 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, it says... Um, This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. How did Christ, we're talking about this question, he vanquishes all hellish and earthly powers. So at the cross, he vanquishes death. How does he vanquish death? She said it has the right to resurrect everybody. What does that mean? The devil can't dispute him anymore about it. What is the basis upon which God created life to operate? What's the basis? Well, he created to be immortal, but what did he construct life? Let me put it that way. What did he construct life to operate upon? He built life to operate in harmony with the law of love, the law of beneficence, the law of giving. We'll give some examples of that in our... Let's talk this afternoon as well. What is sin? Lawlessness. Lawlessness or being outside of the design protocols that life was built to operate upon, right? That's what sin is. And the wages of sin is? Sin, when full-grown, brings forth death. So how does... If you understand this, how do you destroy death? What is the basis of death? Breaking the law of love. Breaking the law of love or being outside the law of love. So Christ destroys death by restoring mankind back to perfect harmony with the law that life was built to operate upon. Or you could say it another way. He destroyed the infection of selfishness in the carnal nature. That temptation to act in self-interest that we're born with. That desire to survive that Christ assumed and took upon himself. And it was mentioned earlier that he was tempted... In the scriptures, they tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin, and we are tempted by our own evil desires to act in self-interest. And you see in Gethsemane, Christ was tempted with powerful human emotions to do what? What did his emotions attempt him to do? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What's the temptation asking? Save. Save me. I don't want to die. That's our human nature. Greater love is no man that he... Give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for our brethren. Those ready to meet Christ when he comes, Revelation chapter 12, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. So Christ took a nature upon himself that was infected with this condition of survival, me first, and at the cross, in Gethsemane and the cross, he crushed it with love. So he destroyed the very principles upon which death is based, which is selfishness and restored the law of love, thus he vanquished or destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Yes? And, and this restoration of God's law is why why he was resurrected. Yes! You know, Christianity often teaches that not only did God execute his son, but then he saw that the sacrifice was perfect, and as a reward, he raised him back up again. That's incorrect. That's right. What's the psalm say? Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is the law of life. And when it's perfectly in harmony, life springs forth from God's principles and in God's nature. He's the source of life. So, but some people said that the law was destroyed. Some, yes. Yeah, 
Yes, yeah, some people will teach that because, and that's an, as soon as some people tell you at the, at the resurrection, at the cross, Christ destroyed the law, they immediately reveal to you that they have accepted the lie of the little horn power that God's law is, is an imposed law. Because they would never suggest to you that at the cross the law of gravity was done away with, or the law of respiration was done away with or the law of thermodynamics was done away with. They would never suggest to you the law upon which God constructed his universe to operate was done away with. What they suggest is that God imposed a set of rules that we have to behave and live by, and at the cross he did away with that. So they've acknowledged that God's law is not a natural law of love that he built everything to operate upon. What we believe is that God's law is like imperial Rome, that he imposes law upon his creatures, and that was done away with. So the very fact they say that tells you they've already accepted the lie of the little horn, about God's law. And that lie accepted changes the whole purpose of the cross. That's how Satan counterattacks. So, Christ destroys the infection of selfishness in humanity. It says in uh, Luke 17, 33, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. What's this talking about? Two contrasting principles. Love is the principle of giving. Survival of the fittest is the principle of protecting self and taking. He's saying, if you operate from the principle of trying to save yourself, you're operating out of harmony with my design. I did not create life to work this way. But if you give your life freely, then you're in harmony with the way I built life, and you will live eternally. This is, does that make sense? And then the quote above that we read actually says the following words. This sacrifice was offered for the purpose. Why was Christ's sacrifice offered? For a purpose for the purpose of restoring man to his original perfection. Notice that. Because how many times you hear traditionally that the purpose of the cross was to, you fill in the blank, pay a penalty, appease God, pay, uh, pay our debt, um, pay our ransom, all these other things. The purpose was to restore man to his original perfection. Here's a fascinating quote um, from Zarvages, page 37, by one of the founders of our church. It says, Sin had become a science. This is the time of Christ's arrival. And vice was consecrated as part of religion. Rebellion had struck its roots deep into the heart, and the hostility of man was most violent against heaven. It was demonstrated before the universe that, apart from God, humanity could not be uplifted. A new element of life and power must be imparted by him who made the world. So Christ came to impart a new element into humanity that humanity itself did not any longer possess. With intense interest, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise to sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. And if God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan for securing to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. He had declared that the principles of God's government make forgiveness impossible. How many teach in the church today God cannot forgive without a payment? Some legal necessity. Christ died so God could pardon by accepting payment. Had the world been destroyed, he would have claimed that his accusations were proved true. He was ready to cast blame upon God and to spread his rebellion to the worlds above. But instead of destroying the world, God sent his son to save it. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So Christ did not die to pay some penalty, appease some mad and angry deity or um, offended God. He died to destroy the devil's work. The devil... And death. 
And what is the devil's work? And by the way, the quote for that, 1 John 3, 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's a quote from John. What was the devil's work? One of the founders of our church, and lift them up, page 48, says the following. Man was the crowning act of creation. Man made in the image of God and designed to be a counterpart to God, but Satan has labored. What's another word for labored? Worked. Yeah. Satan has worked to obliterate the image of God in man and imprint upon him his own image. And then in Desire of Ages 37, I love this quote. Satan was exulting that he had succeeded in debasing the image of God in humanity. Then Jesus came to restore in man the image of his maker. Isn't that awesome? You see, this is what the Bible says that Christ did. He destroyed him with the power of death that is the devil. He destroyed death and he destroyed the devil's work by healing and perfectly restoring mankind back to his original design. This was his purpose of his mission. Next sentence in our lesson, quarterly. Yea, more, it was offered to give him an entire transformation of character, making him more than a conqueror. Talking about mankind. The sacrifice of Christ was offered to make us more than a conqueror. Entire transformation of character. What does that mean to you? Yes. This is not intended to be a loaded question, but uh, maybe it is. How, uh, how perfect does Christ expect us to be on this earth? Yes. I think that and the, the prior question about the restoration of God's character man go to, exactly together, and that is whenever you replace the selfish with the unselfish love of God, then walking in that way uh, with each uh, each and every moment, that that brings us to where we need to be. Uh, before I answer the question, I want you to hear the question. How perfect does God expect us to be on this earth? I want you to hear this question and and look at it through two lenses. Look at it through the lens of God's law being the law of love upon which he created his universe to exist. The principles upon life is based. How perfect does he expect us to be? And then look at it through the imperial view that God has a list of rules that we must behave and adhere to. How perfect does God expect us to be? And the measuring stick that you have to attain a certain level. Yes. Do you see that question differently depending on which lens you're looking through? I hope you do. Yes. I yes. never looked through this lens before. To me, to me, the written law of God is a tr- law is a transcript of God's character. It's just it just tells me what God is like. And and to me, we serve a perfect God. So the more we let the Holy Spirit of God live in us and live out His life through it through us, the more we attain to that perfection. And we aren't supposed to keep looking at ourselves to see how great we are. We're supposed to be looking at Jesus to see how great he is. You said some very wonderful things there. I really appreciate that. And you're right that the law of God, the written law, the Ten Commandment law, is a transcript of God's character. There's no question about that. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All the law, the prophets hang on these two, Christ said. Um, But question... Was the law of the Ten Commandments always in existence? Did the, did the angels in heaven have a law to honor their mother and father? That the sins we pass down to the third and fourth generation of them that are disobedient? Did they have a Sabbath law when the Sabbath is measured by this earth rotating in relation to a sun that wasn't created till day four of creation week? Honor your father is God. And mother? Yeah, he's motherly too. <laughs> Not commit adultery. 
don't worship, don't worship other things. So God is repeating himself when he says in the first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me or make any graven images and then commit adultery. It's just a repetition. Didn't really mean anything other than that. It's like all God, you know, be, be towards God, take all of God. When you covet when you live in a perfect world. Live for God. Don't you think it all came down, though, to where the children of Israel uh, were so misguided and so self-directed that they simply, it was created because they needed some level of detail on which to begin? Of course. And let me get back to the point about the transcript. We could take some of your blood and we can get an entire transcript of your DNA sequence, which is unique to you, and there'd be no one else with that sequence. And we could write that down, and we could print it out, and you all could read the the exact sequence of of your own DNA. We could accurately say, this is a transcript of you. Now, with that transcript, and it is, uniquely you. It would identify you uh, against everybody else. We use DNA to identify criminals and stuff all the time. It's unique. With that transcript, would we then know the sound of your laugh, the warmth of your hug, the quality of your character? Well, that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're a transcript but they're a dim transcript because the law was never, ever intended to be written on stone. The law of love is a living law written in the hearts and minds of intelligent beings. That's why the new covenant, I will write my law on your hearts and minds. And it only got written down in a on stone for the purposes of a human beings once it was no longer in the hearts of human beings. And so the Ten Commandments are a distillation of that great law of love, uniquely written for a need that existed on planet Earth that never existed before it was written on stone. Yes? Isn't, isn't it true that in the last week's lesson, or so or the one before that, we were talking about the Old and New Covenant, and this New Covenant of writing God's law on our hearts was actually the very, 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 very Old Covenant because law, God's law was on the hearts of of the people who accepted him before that was even written down on stone? Uh, Sure. Right. And so the writing it on stone covenant, this is what we will do, that covenant lasted about two weeks. And then it was over. Once they worshipped the golden calf. So the the technical old covenant that we talk about being the covenant of works that they were going to perform was a covenant that lasted about two weeks. And then we're back to the covenant of grace. Throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament system, it's a covenant of grace. Yes. I was just going to briefly go back to this question, how perfect does God want us to be? It reminded me of uh, recently understanding that, that Luther didn't have initially in his ministry a high appreciation of the book of James. He called it the epistle of straw because James seemed to go directly against Paul and Galatians where Paul says man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. James and James 2 4 says, Man is justified by works. But later it seemed in, in, uh, in Luther's life that he began, to, he came to reconcile those two statements to understand that we are indeed justified in relation to the law only through faith in Jesus Christ. However, faith cannot exist without works. Yeah, several hands. Go ahead. And 1 John 3 answers this for me better than anything else. And I like what you said, looking at it through the two lenses. If you look at 1 John 3, 4 through the one lens, sin is a transgression of the law, or sin is rebelliousness or lawlessness, it's a completely different approach. So if you read on through 1 John 3, 
He says, if you have this type of relationship, you cannot sin. Okay, so let's, let me ask you this question. When you talk about how perfect does the Lord expect us to be, let me ask you this. If you're dying of a terminal disease and you go to a physician who has a remedy for you, what do you say to the physician? How healed do you want to be? I want to be perfectly healed or I only want to be 85% healed? You see, the, the pressure on our transformation is really the pressure on the one applying the remedy to our lives. Our responsibility in relation to a physician is to trust him and follow his directions. But the healing doesn't come from our trust nor our work to follow the directions. The healing comes from the application of the remedy that we didn't procure or have any part in. In Christ, it says in Hebrews eight uh, five nine, it says, once he was made perfect. Now get your mind through that statement. Once made perfect. Wait a minute. I thought he was born perfect. So what the scripture is here saying, it's implying something different. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect. What does that mean? And this, this, and if you put the pieces together, it makes complete sense. It goes back to the two ways you view the law. God built his universe to run on certain principles. Life was designed to exist only in harmony with his character of love. We have a list of rules that we have to adhere to because the imperial emperor has put rules upon us, and as an imperial imposer of law, he has to impose penalties if you break them. And therefore, the only way we can escape having all been found guilty is we have to have somebody pay our penalty to escape the imposition of the, of the death penalty by the imposer of law. These are two different ways to see it. So, having been made perfect, if this is the correct way, then we have baby Jesus born as an infant, perfect and sinless, Herod tries to kill him. Well, we need someone to pay a legal penalty, a perfect sinless life. Why don't we just let Herod kill him? We've got innocent baby Jesus, bloodshed, payment made. Let's get done. Let's move on. No, because Hebrews is telling you, once made perfect. He had a mission, and that mission we read earlier was to restore the image of God in man. He had to, with his human brain, develop a perfect character. Desire of Ages 761. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept them. And so Christ came to live out the law of love in humanity, vanquish the infection that drives us to act in self-interest, which tempted him in Gethsemane, which tempted him at the cross. And every time the temptation came, he chose to give his life freely, thus destroying that very drive within us that drives us to act to protect self. And thus he becomes the source of salvation for all who will obey him. And what happens, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit takes all Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I have a new heart and right spirit. I've been recreated in the inner man. I've been reborn. I have the law, uh, law written on the heart and mind. I have the mind of Christ. I have the stony heart removed, the heart of flesh put in. It's all telling us the same thing. It's a real regeneration. And so... Back to how perfect does he expect us to be? Let's use a literal example of the God's law that he built his universe to run upon. The law of respiration. You decide to become lawless. Sin is lawlessness. I'm outside the law. So I become lawless by tying a plastic bag over my head. I'm breaking the law. How perfect does God expect me to be? Can the law be changed to meet the sinner in his sin? No. Can we change the law of respiration to meet the person in their suffocation as they tie a plastic bag over their head? No. So what does God expect? He expects perfect harmony with his design. 
So he sent Christ to put us back into perfect harmony with his design. And all who accept and trust him have a heart change. Now, where people get confused is they confuse the heart change with the neural circuit rewiring, which are two different things. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 7, and I get this all the time. The heart is, when the heart is changed, this is Romans chapter 4, where Abraham trusted God and was recognized as righteous. Because our natural heart is, according to Scripture, in what kind of a condition toward God? Enmity. Enmity. We are naturally distrusting and opposed and hostile to God. That's our natural state. When Abraham trusted God, what had happened to his heart's natural state? It had changed. Abraham had a new heart. And thus, when his heart was changed, God recognized him as righteous. Why? Because the heart that was opposed to me is now a heart that trusts me. And once the heart opens the door to trust, guess what, guys? Holy Spirit comes in. What's the Holy Spirit do? Begins the clean up healing process. And that outcome is guaranteed as long as you keep your heart open to God. Now, during that process, though, there is a problem. That is, we have old conditioned neural circuit habit patterns, preconceived ideas, distorted belief systems that will come out in multiple different situations that we didn't anticipate, and we will look at God's law through the lens of a list of rules we have to adhere to, and we will think, oh no, I'm not perfect. But see, the man whose heart is perfect when he slips up in those conditions is grieved. What a wretched man am I. Who will save me from this body of death? I am so weak. I can't even do the things I want to do. My heart is for the Lord, but my neural circuits, my old habit patterns, they're not yet broken. This is what we find going on. And the devil tricks us into believing that because we've slipped up in a certain situation, that well, we're not perfect and the Lord still is in our side, blah, blah, blah. It's a perfect trust relationship with the Lord in which you trust Him with your outcome of your life. And in that trust, you seek to love others more than self. And it comes down to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Think it through what it means. We are wired from birth to love ourselves so much, we call this the survival of the fittest instinct. And we, all the courts of human, human uh, nations recognize your right to kill another person to protect yourself. But the scripture says when your heart's changed that you won't shrink from death. You do not love your own life so much that you'll shrink from death. So we see examples. Moses at age 40 murders the overseer. At age 80, take my life, my, my name out of the book. I'm willing to give my life now. Paul stoning people before Damascus Road. After Damascus Road, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. Something has changed in the heart. This is what it means. And this is what God is looking for. And this cannot happen in your heart as long as we still hold to lies about God. And as long as we teach a, a construct that is behavioral in focus, that is a imposed law list in focus, and when you come back this afternoon, I'm going to give you some unbelievable quotes that are currently being put forth by major teachers in Christianity, including our church, that teach the most horrendous things about God and oppose his ability to heal our hearts and minds. Yes, I saw a hand back there. We also have a great example in history of what happens uh, through the other lens of perfection with, with the Pharisees. They, they were so perfect in following the law that had been set forth that when God himself came down and taught them and, and healed on the Sabbath, they murdered him. Excellent, exactly. When you have this, this list of rules, behavioral type of imposed law kind of construct, this is what happens to your heart. Um, 
The next sentence in our quote, it says, those who in the strength of Christ overcome the great enemy of God and man. Notice how we overcome in the strength of Christ. Yeah, strength of God. Um, uh, will occupy a position in the heavenly courts above angels who have never fallen. Now, what do you think that means? Think through how God's government works. Those who shall be first shall be... The higher you go, you the, the lower you go, the... You see? Christ was, Christ humbled himself down, Philippians chapter 2, down, 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 and he's ultimately exalted. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, Lucifer, I will ascend, I will ascend, I will ascend, I will ascend, and is ultimately cast down. So how is it that we're going to be exalted? Because we have learned to be humble and humble ourselves. And my, my thoughts are this, this is what exalts us. When we get to heaven, we have a greater appreciation from our experience in sin on earth of God's love, Amen. of God's, of, and a greater appreciation of the devastation and pain that violations of God's law cause, and a greater eagerness to join in an uplifting Christ and what He has accomplished in our behalf, because we have a story to tell. And I think we will find ourselves through eternity being ministers and priests of God, traveling the universe, telling a story of how sin destroys and how God's kingdom and character of love restore and heal. And in that ministry to others, sharing this message, that's what exalts us. And that's why we're higher, because we have a a deeper intimacy with the character of God's love, having experienced that redemption. And we have a story to tell that will enlighten and thrill the the beings in the universe. And and just imagine in the future, we're going to travel all over and tell a story. You're not a public speaker, you're going to be. And what about this? On the cross, Christ on the cross was the medium whereby mercy and truth met together and righteousness and peace kissed each other. This is the means that is to move the world. There's a quote there out of Psalms 85.10 which says, Love and faithfulness met together, righteousness and peace kissed each other. So what does it mean, mercy and truth met together? Mercy and truth. What is the truth? Of course, Jesus is the source of all eternal truth, and... um, and there's no question about that. My understanding in this particular context, though, of mercy meeting truth is this the truth of our condition, our terminal sinful state, being out of harmony with God's design, incompatible with life. But in Christ, our sinful state was mercifully healed. Christ took upon himself our iniquity, our sinfulness, and in mercy overcame where we could not. So the truth of our condition was mercifully cured, overcome in Christ. And God is righteous and always does what is right. And the right thing, the law of God requires, is perfect harmony with its design. And Christ achieved that for us. Therefore, God's rightness, his perfect law of love, was in Christ and brought peace, harmony, reconciliation of sinful man with God by healing man back to God's design. Do you think I think I missed it? Or do you think that's what it's saying? I, I agree that you're spot on and that uh, we were originally creating God's image. I know I suggested to a young man that one thing no human is able to do is to ultimately be in harmony with that image in our current condition. And that troubled him. But I, I think that... Uh, it was insightful to me to recognize in Romans 3.23 that 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that that word glory in the original Greek language, which I'm sure there's some theologians that understand it better than I, referred to image, fallen short of the image of God. Yeah, absolutely. Nicely said. And so in Romans 5, 1, we read, now that we have, this is, this is the good news translation, now that we have been put right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice, not now that our legal sentence has been paid, but now that we have been put right, we have actually been changed. Our hearts are no longer at enmity. Our hearts are now in unity and in, in, in harmony with God. We have peace. Wednesday's, Wednesday's lesson. So we just finished Friday. Look at that. Wednesday's lesson. Yes, hand over here. Yes. I have two comments on perfection. The first one, I, I don't think I have ever thought the thought before that you brought out that Jesus, when he came, if Herod had killed him when he was a perfect baby, would have, would have done what he came to do. I, I never have thought before that he had a character of perfection as a human to develop. And, and that was brought out. I just think that's such, a, such an awesome thought. But it goes along with the text I never really understood before, which is Hebrews 2.10. And it says that, that the caption of their salvation would be perfect through sufferings. And I just, I just think right there in the last part of Hebrews, Hebrews 2, it talks so much about that he was made like unto his brethren. He wasn't made, you know, like he was made lower than the angels. And it seems like that Hebrews 2 is, is developing that thought some more. Nice, you know, yeah. That. And I really, I really, really appreciate that thought because I've never thought of it before. And I think it's a tremendous thought. The other thought that I'm having about perfection is that I don't, I don't question that, that Jesus came to take my place and that because I accept him, he can live within my heart. You know, I, I don't have a problem with that. But I can't really, I can't really picture myself ever praying the prayer, blot, blot me out of your kingdom to accept somebody else in. I mean, I just can't, I just can't see myself ever praying anything like that before. And, and I just, I just feel like, like, I'm not supposed to worry about that, that if, that if I let Jesus live in me, to me, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling means to become more and more like Jesus, to keep working to get closer, to keep working to know more of him, to keep working to make myself one with him, that that's my, my job. And, and, if I, and if I want him there, and I, and I keep working, influencing my brain with the goodness of God, that he will bring me about to whatever I need to be. And that I shouldn't really worry about it if I feel, oh, I'm, sh I'm short in this area, or I don't think I can ever be perfect in this area. I think I shouldn't really worry. I think I should let him take care of that work. Yes. If I could say, Lord, block me out of your kingdom to save one of my children, I could do that. Yes, yes. It's important to recognize the context within which Christ talks about be therefore perfect as God is perfect. What, what was the context uh, of these phrases? Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven perfect? Is, I is think perfect? it was when Christ said, love thy enemies. It is. Context if of we love. we are able to love people that don't like us, in other words, we love everyone without any condition, if we somehow can love our enemies, we can become like Christ. And it's, remember in Revelation 3.21, uh, it talks about overcomers. 
These quotes like, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, are almost always heard through that lens of an imposed law. And it, fe- and, it he- and it sounds like a, a list of rules and behaviors that I have to engage in. When we understand it through the law that God designed life to operate upon, it would be like saying, hey, breathe regularly, like your Father in heaven breathes regularly. That's what it would be like saying. Okay, It's saying, this is how life is built to operate, and I want you perfectly healthy, perfectly harmony, har- uh, perfectly happy. So, And the only way that's going to happen is if you're in harmony with the, with the protocols I built life to operate upon, and the law of love is the law of life for the universe. And so it changes everything when we see God's law, and that's why Daniel, we'll talk about this again this afternoon, the prophecy in Daniel about the little horn changing God's law, the, the Christian community has been bamboozled into accepting a, a, a diversion the real change in God's law was, was not merely a commandment change that, that everybody admits happened. The change was this idea that God's law is an imposed law, not a natural law. And, and think it through. If the ecclesiastical authorities accepted and believed that God's law was the natural law, like the law of respiration, well, what church committee thinks they can change that law? No, the fact that they think they can meet in committee and change the law is a tacit acknowledgement that they've already accepted the change that God's law has imposed and arbitrary. And the fact that we argue about their rights to do so, we're operating in their ball field. Okay? And, and we've already accepted the lie, and this is where it changes everything. All of our theology has been perverted after the cross because of the change in how we see God's law. I could say, Lord, blot out my name from the books for my children, but the ultimate would be, could I say that for a stranger? That's the ultimate sign of love. Or could you say it for the person who molested your child? Right, right. That's... Oh, I heard rumblings on that one. But isn't that what Christ did? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He gave his life. Greater love is no man that he gives his life for a friend, but aren't we to love our enemies? Yeah. And that's not natural. That comes as a supernatural transformation of our heart. Yes. I, I think that giving your life for somebody else is a sweet thing that shows that you love them. But is that something God can really do? I mean, he's going to judge that person on whether or not they've done the right things or accepted his sacrifice in order for them to go to heaven. Not because I say I'm going to give my life for them. You, you didn't live your right life right, but Wendy's willing to give her life for you so you can go to heaven anyway? That's never going to happen. Sorry, nobody's willing to give the life for you. The issue is, if you aren't willing to do that, you can't go to heaven. Well, I mean, it just doesn't... It's not, it's not that you willing to do that makes the other person go to heaven. It's, it's not whether you can do that makes the other person go to heaven. If you can't do that, you can't go to heaven. It is a literal thing. It is a literal thing that our hearts are changed, that we love them that much and we're willing right. to. Right, that part is. Yes. Yes. Yes, Derek. I'm fascinated by the parallel passage in Luke to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. We always struggle with be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The parallel passage in Luke says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So does that, does that help the picture? Yeah, you put it with Micah 6.6. 6. This is what the Lord requires of you. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. See, having a heart... I mean, you pray for other people to go to heaven, but saying I'm going to give, I'm not going to go instead of you is one thing. I mean, you pray for their life to be right so they can go also. See, the, the prayer of, that, that, that Moses did 
take my life out of the book, the prayer that Paul did, I'd gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might live, it's an expression of their heart. Their heart has been changed that they are more concerned about other people than they are themselves. Our natural biological wiring from Adam, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, the, the naturalists call this survival of the fittest, we are primarily wired to watch out for self. And we'll sacrifice others to protect self. That is antithesis to God's design, and it's the source of death. Only by changing that motive of our heart can we be brought back into the harmony of God's kingdom and have eternal life. So, yes, there is no legal transaction where I can substitute my life for somebody else's life, but there is a healing transformation that is necessary where my heart loves them so much I'd be willing to. Yes. Well, I think it's a beautiful thing that uh, instead of saying... I'm trying to measure up to an expectation in order to be loved by God, that my greatest desire is to reflect the beauty of God's character. And and that's where I think being merciful, to me, it says I want to reflect the beauty of God's character in the way that I relate to other people. That that becomes a promise and a a beautiful opportunity rather than an obligation. I I think that's well said. Yes, right here. Oh, somewhere there's a comment. I was just going to comment between the the two great women back here that were talking about giving their life and that she could do that for her child. That was Paul and Moses' expression of a great heart change they had gone through. Purely hypothetical. God never puts us in that position of saying, I've got this many slots. Who gets in? But that was their expression. That was the way they put into very poignant words what had happened in their heart. If I could do anything, I would do it. And the ultimate anything is giving our lives. What they were saying is, I'm all in God on their behalf. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize our need that naturally we're born with fear and insecurity. We, we don't trust people. We don't trust you naturally anymore. We've been wired to, to watch out for ourselves, to watch out for number one. We're, we're, we're instinctually driven to, to exploit and hurt, and, and we recognize how dysfunctional humanity really is without you. We thank you so much that you sent your son to reveal the truth of your kingdom, your character, your methods, to overcome where we could never overcome, living out a perfect life, vanquishing those, those impulses to act to save self and restoring your character of love perfectly into the species human. Now Christ is the source of salvation for all who trust. We ask now that you will take your spirit and write your law of love into our hearts and minds. Uh, Transform us and renew us, that we can go out and know you, understand you, reveal you, and shine the truth of your kingdom into this world, because, Lord, this world is hurting. The the, the enemy forces are are marching so so strongly now. we We need your witnesses out there to tell the truth. We pray that we will be those witnesses in this community and that you will, will work through us and speak through us and, and love through us, that others will, will know you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.